So if you've not noticed, those of you who've been coming for a while, our church is a very um, pensive group of people, right? So like when I preach, when someone else preaches, this is how you all look. <laughs> and it can be challenging as the preacher to know what you're thinking, Okay. And the funny thing is that I know if some of y'all were in the churches that you came up in, you'd be just a little bit more vocal. Am I right? Yeah, thank you. But I think, I don't, I, this is my theory, because we're, we're in this intentionally multi-ethnic church, I think a lot of times we're sitting there and we want to be a little responsive, but it's like, can I do that? Can I say that? You know, so I'm giving you permission Talk back a little bit, okay? So you're allowed to say things like, amen. Just try it. Amen. How'd that sound? How'd that feel? That feel pretty good? Yeah? Feel all right? Yeah. Especially like white people, you know? Like we sometimes are like, woo, you know? But it feels good, like, you know? So amen. Or if if you're, if, if, if I'm, if you're not tracking with me, you can say, help them, Lord, you know? So if that, you know, that'd be kind of a nice way to let me know you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, or just, yes, or, you know, you can even ever, you know. So, is that, are you, is that okay? Here's the, my, I said I'm in trouble today because the, the, the folks who usually help me out this way, they're all like traveling in a way for Labor Day weekend. So I'm looking around like, I'm going to need some help today. So, some of y'all, okay? Thank you. So I was testing y'all out there. And you're like. <laughs> Matthew chapter uh, 8, Matthew chapter 8. We're uh, maybe about a, a third or half of the way through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew through the lens of transformation. We've been saying that if we as a church are going to have anything to offer anybody, it's because we ourselves have been transformed by Jesus. Amen? There you go. Uh, so what we've been doing is we've been, we've been just paying attention to the life of Jesus, and we've been, we've been noticing that people who encounter Jesus are transformed by Jesus. And so we've been looking and asking, what does it mean to be people who claim to follow Jesus? Because it's not enough to just say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Our lives ought to look different because we do follow Jesus. And that's been the lens that we've been, been, been uh, coming at the Gospel of Matthew through. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Let me read just, uh, excuse me, 18 through 34 is our passage. Let me just read the first few verses to you. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. This is Jesus. Now, um, or excuse me, verse 18. Uh, when Jesus got, saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Uh, Jesus has just healed a bunch of people. And as often happens, and we see this throughout the Gospels, when Jesus does miraculous things, people show up. Crowds gather. And what does Jesus do? He sneaks away. This is just kind of his thing. People show up wanting to be a part of something spectacular, and Jesus sneaks out the back door. So that's what's happening here. Verse 18, Jesus saw the crowds around him. He gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Watch Jesus' response. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Ah, so Jesus is not real sensitive in this passage. He's kind of harsh, kind of abrupt. 
Uh, and so before we get to the rest of our passage, I want to I just make a couple observations about what Jesus is doing here because it should catch us off guard. This, this isn't the, kind of the nice, cuddly Jesus that maybe some of us are used to. I want to follow you. Okay, but I'm, I don't have anywhere to sleep at night. I want to follow you, but I got to bury my father first. Let the dead bury their own dead. Is this the Jesus who you kind of, you know, gravitate to? Not most of us. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus have these responses to these two disciples? The first one, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds good. Now, in this day, we've said that, that people would have looked at Jesus and kind of seen him as a rabbi. You remember this? A rabbi was a teacher. And a teacher, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, had a group of followers whose goal it was to become like their rabbi. Not just to learn the things that the rabbi says, but to actually become like their rabbi. So they would be with him 24-7, all the time. Because education was not just head, it was utter, complete transformation. Now here's the thing. In that day, you wouldn't just go up to a rabbi and say, I'd like to follow you. That would have been a little presumptuous. That would have been a little presumptuous. The rabbi would come to you. Say, Jen, I think you have what it takes. I would like you to follow me. We watch Jesus do this over and over again. He comes to the fisherman. He comes to the tax collector. and says, you follow me. So, so we read this story. We maybe miss a little something. We go, oh, this guy wants to follow Jesus. Isn't that great? It's presumptuous. Jesus, I, I want to follow you I'll, wherever you go. What does Jesus say? Really? Do you know what you want? Do you know what you're getting into? Jesus has been healing, performing miracles. He is the hot new rabbi. Like the word is out on the street. This, this guy's ministry is blowing up. And this guy says, I want to be a part of that. I want to be, I, I want some of that. You know what we would call this person today? A spiritual consumer. A spiritual consumer. I, 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 want, I want what you've got going on there, even though I'd, I'm not really going to commit to it, but I'd like to benefit from it. Jesus says, oh, if you want to follow me, you're not going to have anywhere to sleep at night. You sure you want in? You sure you want in? We don't know what happens to this guy. Second guy shows up. He says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever, but uh, I need to bury my father first. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, that's just mean, right? That's just mean. Here's the deal. In this day, in this culture, if a son, if a son's father died, he was relieved of all of his religious responsibilities. Anything that he was supposed to do under the religious law, he was in that moment relieved of. To the most basic things like even daily prayers, the most important part of the Jewish life, these daily prayers, the law said, if your father died, you were relieved of those until he was buried. You think this man's father had actually died? The thing is, if his father had actually died, he wouldn't be there talking to Jesus. He he would have to be actually burying his father. There would be no time to have a conversation. There would be no time to be waiting along the road for Jesus to pass by and have a conversation. Not for a good Jewish son. You hear this? So when he says, "Uh, I'm with you, Jesus. I just got to bury my father first. Jesus calls his bluff. His father's not dead. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he's old. (laughs) He's not dead. 
So Jesus' response is harsh, sure, but he's calling this man's bluff. Let the dead bury their own dead. Your father's not actually dead. We, I would call this man a, a, a spiritual spectator. Again, he's heard about Jesus. He wants to be associated with Jesus, but he's not interested in committing to Jesus. I like what you're about, but uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to actually follow you. <laughs> I like the things that you're saying. I like the miracles that you're doing, but I'm not actually going to go with you. And so Jesus has these two really harsh responses to these men. And here's, here's the question that I have. Why is it that when Matthew was putting together his gospel, his biography of Jesus, why did he choose to put these two conversations right here? What was the strategic value for Matthew of placing these two conversations at this point in Jesus' story? Because Jesus, again, like we said, he's just been healing lots of people. Things are going great. Lots of people are coming. And then Matthew says, he puts on the brakes. Now these two guys came up to Jesus, said they want to be a part of things, and Jesus shut them down. Like, why would, why would Matthew do that? I'm not Matthew, I don't know. Here's my guess. Matthew has just been telling us about Jesus' explanation of, go- of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount. You remember? The Sermon on the Mount, if you, if you weren't here, if you missed our, 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 our weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, go back and listen to these because it's critical to our understanding of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has just been explaining in all kinds of detail, this is what life within the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, has come near. Why? Because Jesus has come. The Son of God has come. Because of that, God's kingdom is breaking into this world. Something new is happening. And Jesus says, this is what life within that kingdom is like. The blessed life is available to everybody, Jesus says. No matter where you come from, who you are, what you've done, what's been done to you, the blessed life is available. Why? Jesus has come. The kingdom has come. Righteousness is no longer something you strive after, something you work really hard for. Jesus said, righteousness is now a transforming gift given to you by God through Jesus, to utterly transform your heart from the inside out so that you live different. So that revenge is not your only option anymore when you interact with enemies. So that love is the bottom line in all of your relationships. Remembering this. So here's the thing. Jesus has just put forward this beautiful portrayal of life within the kingdom of heaven. He said, this is what it's like. This is what life looks like. But where do you and I live? You and I, as followers of Jesus, we live in a sense with one foot within this kingdom of heaven and one foot where? Here. And so we hear Jesus describing, this is is what my coming kingdom is like. This is what life is like within my coming kingdom. Because of what I have done, this is what your life is to be about now. And we go, oh, it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's challenging. And then we go to work. (laughs) And then that family member calls you up on the phone again. You hear me? And all of a sudden, you're reminded that the kingdom has not come in its fullness yet. Life is still broken. 
There is still evil. There is still wickedness. There is still sin. And so for the follower of Jesus, for the disciple of Jesus, there is a tension in our lives between what Jesus said has come and is coming, this beautiful kingdom of heaven, and life as we experience it now. You hear what I'm saying? There's a tension that ought to exist for the Christian. Can I tell you that if you don't experience this tension as a follower of Jesus, that's, that's a red flag. If life for you just feels good all the time, that's a problem. Can I suggest that either you're spending too much time with church people in church world, that you've gotten yourself disconnected with what's actually happening in the world, or you've become so entrenched in the world and how the world works that you have no kind of conviction or tension between that and the kingdom of heaven? You hear what I'm saying? Tension for the follower of Jesus is not something to be avoided. It's normal. And we ought to experience it until Jesus comes back. So why does Jesus place these two interactions right here? Why does Matthew place these two interactions right here? I think Matthew is showing us one of the results of this tension. Here's this kingdom of heaven. It's coming. We somehow have been invited into it in Jesus, and yet our world is still sinful and broken and wicked. It's both. We live in both. It's just tension. I think Matthew wants us to see that one of the results of this tension is that for the follower of Jesus, we will have to confront some of our deepest fears. That for the follower of Jesus, we will have to, in this tension, confront some of our deepest, Deepest fears. Now, here's the truth. Here's the truth. As Christians, we have nothing to fear but God. Amen. As Christians, we have nothing to fear but God. And yet, paradoxically, at the same time, as we follow Jesus, we are forced to confront our deepest fears. Why? Because we live in this tension. I want to unpack what I think that looks like from our passage today. I want to show you four different ways that the follower of Jesus confronts our deepest fears. So let's keep reading in our passage, and then we're going to look at these four different ways that we confront fear as those who follow Jesus. Starting in verse 23. Then Jesus got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The the men were amazed and asked, what kind of a man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men came coming, uh, excuse me, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us? Son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. 
So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. So it's a kind of a, it's a, it's an odd story, right? I mean, this hasn't happened to you, has it? If it has, you come up here and preach, okay? This has not happened to me. Here's, here's the first fear. Here's the first fear that we observe followers of Jesus having to confront. Discipleship to Jesus. We have this title. Discipleship to Jesus means confronting fearful situations. Discipleship to Jesus means confronting fearful situations. So the, the, the would-be disciples have sort of been chastised by Jesus, and they, we don't know what happens to them. And, and Jesus and his disciples finally make it to the boat. Now, this boat is probably pretty small. It's a fishing boat for the Sea of Galilee. 10, 12, 13, not too many more people would fit into this boat. And so they all cram into this little fishing boat. And they go out on the lake. Now, we don't know a lot about the disciples at this point. We know four of them, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Those are the only four disciples we've been uh, uh, introduced to so far in the Gospel of Matthew. All four of them share the same profession. They are fishermen. So there's at least four expert sailors in this boat. Four guys who know what they're doing. At this time in in, in Jewish culture, the sea was not a place where people wanted to spend a lot of time. Okay, There were fishermen who who, who, who treated the sea as their uh, their way of earning a living. But by and large, the sea was seen as a a dangerous place. And even in, in Jewish literature as a symbol of evil, wickedness. Okay? So you and I think about maybe going and hanging out by Lake Michigan as something that would be fun, a good way to spend a Saturday. Uh, not so much for these guys, okay? The sea was not seen as a, as a place that you spent time where you hung out. So who's getting into this boat? There's a few guys who are experts. There's a few guys who probably have never been in a boat before. Like, why would they have been? They're not fishermen. So everything starts off pretty good. Jesus is tired. He takes a nap. Maybe in the bow of the boat, he's, he's crashed. Uh, and they sail out onto the sea. Now, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I, I think that, that and, and we see some of the personalities of these disciples as we go along, I think that the four fishermen, I think that they were feeling pretty hot at that point. They're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus needs me. Jesus needs me. I mean, these fools don't know how to sail a boat. It's a good thing that I'm here. It's a good thing I knew where to get a boat. It's a good thing I knew how this works. Jesus needed me. I think the other guys, after they get over their initial, woo, I'm in a boat, I think they're like, whoa, whoa, this, this, this is cool. Following Jesus is, is an adventure. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to experience things I never would have experienced, go places I never would have gone. This is cool. Everything's going well. And then the storm comes. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 630 feet below sea level. Okay, surrounded by mountains that go up over 2,000 feet. Now, you can just sort of picture how this works. Storms don't, you know, slowly just come in. They literally descend onto the lake from the mountains, okay, out of nowhere. So even expert fishermen can be surprised by these storms. 
So the text says that out of nowhere, the storm descends on the lake, and it goes from this, you know, pleasure cruise to we are going to die in a, in a series of minutes, it seems like. All of a sudden, the expert fishermen and the unexperienced sailors, they're on equal ground. You know what that ground is? Scared out of their minds. All of a sudden, this isn't about Jesus needing me or, or having an adventure with Jesus. What do they say? What do they say after they wake him up? Lord, save us. That's all they've got at that point. They don't have any strategy. They don't have any plan. Even the experts, even the guys who spent their entire lives on the sea, they got nothing. Lord, save us. That's it. Can I tell you that discipleship to Jesus means confronting fearful situations where all you will have is, Lord, save us. That's it. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how long you follow Jesus. I don't care how well you know your Bible. I don't care how much of an expert Christian you are. Following Jesus means at some point you will find yourself in situations where all you can say is, Jesus, if you don't show up and do something, I will drown. It's over. Any of you experience that? Any of you know what that's like? Where the storm comes in like that, you're like, where did that come from? I thought everything was going just fine. I thought everything was going just, just, just. Oh, I've got, Lord, save me. Some of you interpret those moments as a sign of being a long ways away from God. No. No. Could it be that the closer that you're following Jesus, the more of those moments you'll have? Could it be that the more times that you say yes to the way of Jesus, the more of those moments you'll have where you say, Lord, you've got to save me. Don't necessarily interpret those times as, as, as things you've done wrong, as ways that you've walked away from God. Some, some of you in these moments, you think, have I done something wrong? Have I offended God? Have I sinned in some way? Maybe you're exactly where God wants you to be. Can I tell you the center of God's will is not a safe place? The center of God's will can feel like the most dangerous place, but it's the place where all you have to say is, Lord, save me. And guess what? He does. He does. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute because there's another thing I want to pull out of that text here, but just hold on to that for now. Discipleship to Jesus means that you and I will confront fearful situations. All right, let's, uh, uh, let, let, let's move forward a little bit. Second, second one. Uh, discipleship to Jesus means confronting our fearful prejudices. All right, this is going to get a little interesting here. Um, Discipleship to Jesus means confronting our fearful prejudices. So, so, the, so, so uh, the disciples, they actually make it through the storm. That's good news, right? Yes, we made it. We're alive. Uh, but, then, but then the text says that they arrived at the other side. Uh, my guess is the disciples were not planning on arriving at the other side. Not just because they thought they were going to drown, but because they'd never been to the other side. What was on the other side? The Decapolis, a, a, a series of 10 uh, Greek city-states. This was not where Jews went. Jews didn't cross the lake. You go fishing on the lake, 
But she's not actually going to go to the other side of the lake. So here are these good Jewish boys following, you know, the rabbi who's supposed to be watching out for them. And they're thinking like, man, if my mother knew where I was going. Jesus gets out of the boat and he starts like heading off. They're like, oh, we better follow this guy. And it's maybe a little bit difficult for us to sort of feel what these guys feel. Gentiles. Then they encounter two demon-possessed men. We're going to get to that in a second, but the text says that these two demon-possessed men have been living where? The tombs. Now, for a Jew, this would have been completely defiling. You, you, I mean, I mean, as unclean as you can, as you can imagine. You didn't do, you didn't, you didn't go, you didn't touch, you weren't in the vicinity of graves, of tombs. Someone was living in a tomb? Hmm. Gentiles, graves, pigs. <laughs> I mean, it's possible, seriously, it's possible that these guys had never even seen a pig before. This was unclean. This was unclean, unclean, unclean. You didn't eat pig? Right? You certainly didn't farm pigs. So you know you're not in Jewish territory when you see pigs running around. Okay? So just imagine yourself. You're this good Jewish boy. You've, you know, you've, you've done your best to keep your nose clean, to follow the law. And then this rabbi comes to you, this Jewish rabbi, and he says, I want you to follow me. Oh, what an honor. What an honor. You've been chosen by a rabbi to Great. And where does this guy take you? Gentiles, tombs, and pigs. This is not what you signed up for. Can I tell you that? This is not what these guys signed up for. Jesus is pushing all of their their prejudice buttons. All of their buttons of ethnocentrism, of racism. Jesus is just pushing them hard now. He's bringing it all out. Discipleship to Jesus means confronting our fearful prejudice, biases, stereotypes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It becomes uh, incredibly important at a church like ours where we say that the gospel is this reconciling presence for us. The gospel is that which reunites that which has been separated. The gospel doesn't just restore relationship with God. It makes relationship with others possible again. It's incredibly important for us and the mission that God has given us that we pay very close attention to this. This is no longer a fun little adventure with Jesus. This isn't the last time Jesus is going to do this to his disciples either. He's going he's to force this on them again. And I think it's really important that you and I understand that from the very beginning of Christianity, there has been this reconciling presence at the heart of the gospel. This isn't an addition later on. Oh, by the way, by the way, uh, if you all could get along, that'd be good too. Oh, by the way, I know that you, you hate that group of people, and if we could try to... No, 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 no. From the very, 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 very beginning of Christianity, Jesus has been demonstrating that at the heart of the gospel is reconciliation. Can you say reconciliation? 
at the very heart of the, this is not an add-on, this is not an addition, this is not a nice little thing that you can do in your, at the very heart of what God is doing to restore the world, reconciliation between us and God and us and one another. This fear that you and I carry, though, uh, runs pretty deep, if we're honest. I'm not telling you anything particularly novel at this point. You can look around our city, and you know this. You know that the walls of division and separation between people are pretty high. I'm not telling you anything new. Uh, different ones of us in our church could tell stories of, of, of oppression, of racism, of sexism. This is not, I'm not telling you anything new. This prejudicial fear runs deep, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, he comes to his disciples and he says, look, I'm going now, but I'm commissioning you. I'm commissioning you to go into, and he says, all of the world, to basically demonstrate and to proclaim this gospel that we've been talking about and to baptize people into this movement. It's pretty, like, it's hard to confuse that message. Go into all of the world. I guess not, you know, complicated. Jesus is saying it's everybody, everywhere. So, so if, if, if a person is even remotely thinking about this, these disciples are aware, oh, oh, I have to go to them too. I have to talk to them too. I was told I wasn't supposed to go there, talk to them, eat with them. From the very beginning of the gospel, now here's the thing. Peter, in his very, uh, in his very first I'm sorry, let me come back to this. Um, uh, uh, Later in Acts, later in Acts, God comes to Peter. Now, Peter was one of the disciples who's been with Jesus from the very beginning. He's heard Jesus' commission go into all the world. Jesus still has to come to Peter later on after Jesus has ascended. He has to come to him in a vision. Anybody remember the story? He comes to him in a vision to to, to say to Peter, you need to take the gospel to who? The Gentiles. Uh, And Peter says, whoa, no, no. I've never done that. I've never gone there. I've always kept my nose clean. You imagine Jesus like, you're missing the point. So, so Peter's been there. He's watched Jesus push these barriers. He's been commissioned by Jesus. Jesus still has to come to him in a vision and say, look, seriously, I'm not kidding. The gospel's for everybody. Come on, Peter. Now, to his credit, he goes. He goes. Okay? But later on, later on in Galatians, in Galatians, Paul writes that he had to confront Peter. Peter had forgotten. And Paul said, look, uh, uh, Paul says, look, Peter, you're going back on your, own, on, your, on your own bigotry. You're going back to that. You're not associating with Gentiles anymore. You're not sitting down at the table and sharing food with Gentiles anymore. And, and Paul, Paul is just, he's bold. He's like, I, I had to publicly call him out for distracting people from the gospel of Jesus. This fear, this fear, this prejudicial fear, this, these, these, these things that you and I carry, these, these streams of racism and ethnocentrism and bigotry in our lives run deep. We talk about the tension between the kingdom of heaven and the world that we live in, and we'd be stupid if we pretended like the world that we live in hasn't influenced us in these kinds of ways. Amen? Can you admit that? This fear runs deep. And so as a church with the mission that we have, as we pursue Jesus, as we follow Jesus, you and I are going to be forced to confront these things in our lives. 
be frank, that's enough for some folks to say, no, thank you. God bless your church. I'll, I'll go back. Why? Because it's a lot of work. And it's a lot of repentance. And it's a lot of forgiveness. And it's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of listening. Am I right? It's a lot of work. I have conversations with people who visit our church, and they look around, and, and it's like, ooh, diversity. People are really into that, you know? It's like, oh, it looks so nice. You have, and it's like people try to find different ways to say this, you know? It's like, oh, your church is so unique. <laughs> you have a lot of different kinds of people who, you know, it's like, what's the, they're trying to be sensitive or something, I don't know. And you know how, you know how long that will last? A week, two, maybe, till someone says something offensive? Someone says something stupid. You get, you get tired because, man, we don't get to worship the way I'm used to worshiping. The preaching is not like the kind of preaching I had. I'm not sure how to be in community and conversation with anybody, anybody. Is it just me who feels this? Help me out here. Being a, a part of the church with the mission that we have means that we confront these kinds of fears on a regular basis. Be encouraged. You're not the only one. We do this together. We do this together. So, 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 following Jesus, discipleship to Jesus means that we confront fearful situations, means that we confront our own prejudices and biases and bigotry. And then, and then, discipleship to Jesus means confronting our fear of evil. Confronting our fear of evil. Think about the disciples at this point. They're just done. They've they've been through a storm. And now Jesus is pushing all of their kind of cultural hot buttons. And now, and now, and now, two demon-possessed dudes show up. They're just done at this point, right? There's like, this is, this, am I in a dream? What is happening to me? People back home are never going to believe this. They're just done. They're overwhelmed. And, and you know what? In this story, they don't say anything. We don't hear anything from the disciples. Can I tell you? Good move on their part. <laughs> Whose job is it to confront evil? It's not yours not mine. This is God's work. This is God's work. Now, because we pursue Jesus, because we follow Jesus, we are present as Jesus confronts evil. You and I don't go looking for evil to confront. This is God's job. I love this here. There's a part in here that says that the the two men were so violent. The two men were so violent that no one could pass through. Except for Jesus. The two men were so violent that no one could pass through. I bet the disciples, they're like, hey, Jesus, did you hear that? No one could pass through. He's like, yeah, come on, let's go. I love that little detail. Because this means that you and I are going to find ourselves going places that nobody else is going to go. We're going to find ourselves in places that nobody else wants to be. We're going to find ourselves in relationships with people who others have written off. The world says, ah, no, we don't go there. It's too violent, it's too depressing. It's too dangerous. It's not glamorous enough. It's too broken. 
And Jesus says, yeah, 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 come on, come on, come on, let's go, let's go. Follow me. Some of you know exactly what this feels like. Some of you know exactly what it feels like to follow Jesus in this way because you have stepped into areas of injustice and brokenness that you wouldn't have stepped into otherwise. You go, how did I find myself here? Jesus confronting evil, and you are following him there. Some of you have been personally attacked or maligned as you pursue Jesus. Why is this happening? Because you're following Jesus as he confronts evil and injustice. Some of you are discouraged and depressed by the effects of sin and wickedness on those who you love. Because you're following Jesus as he confronts evil. This is the paradox. This is the paradox of the Christian life. The more we love Jesus, the more we will experience the brokenness of our world. The paradox of the Christian life. The more that we love Jesus, the more we will experience the brokenness in our world. The closer we follow Jesus, the more we will see the impact of evil on the lives of women and men. It's the paradox of Christian life. This is why it drives me crazy when people say, you start following Jesus and your life's going to be great. Well, sure, sure, that's true, but that's not the whole story. Of course God's going to transform your life. But you are going to confront things that you would have never confronted otherwise. You're going to, your heart is going to be broken by things that you would have ignored otherwise. Why? Because that's where Jesus is going. They were so violent that nobody would pass through. And Jesus says, let's go. Jesus says one word in this entire passage. Jesus says one word in this entire passage. What's the word? You see it? Go. I love this. I love this. It's like, it's like Matthew tells his whole story with these details, and, and who's the center of it? Jesus. So you'd think he's got a lot to say, right? Go. He's, he just tells the demons, go. They're gone. It's all talk. We, we make these situations so big and so complex and so terrifying. Jesus, nobody goes that way. I know we're going this way. This is going to be crazy. This is going to be insane. Go. They're gone. Okay, we're done. We can go now. One word. Is that good news? With one word, evil defeated. With one word, two ostracized men liberated. Is that good news? It's great, 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 great news. This is what the Gospel of John says in chapter 16. Jesus says to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. Of course. If we're following Jesus as Jesus pursues and defeats evil, it makes sense we're going to have some trouble, right? In this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. What does he go on to say? But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the Gospel. With one word, evil defeated. Jesus says, I've overcome the world, so let's go. Follow me. We got work to do. So even as we confront our fear of evil, 
We simultaneously watch as Jesus brings healing, restoration, liberation, reconciliation, and salvation. Let me say that again. Even as you and I confront our fear of evil, even as we feel that in our gut, Jesus, are you sure we're going that way? Even as we pursue Jesus that way and we confront our fear of evil, we get to watch as Jesus brings healing, restoration, liberation, reconciliation, and salvation. Do you want to see that? Do you want to watch that? Stay next to Jesus. Stay next to Jesus. Follow him closely, even when you're terrified. Because you're going to get to see Jesus do amazing things. Do you want to be there for that? Do you want to be there for that? As Jesus does what only Jesus can do. Here's the last one. Here's the last one. Discipleship to Jesus means fearing only God. Let's go back to the boat here. Um, Verses 25 through 27. The disciples went and they woke Jesus up. Lord, they said, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now here's something I find a little humorous. The disciples wake Jesus up, say, uh, is, this is, is bad, Jesus. Uh, it, save us. And what is Je- what's the first thing Jesus does? What's the first thing Jesus does? Huh? Rebukes them. <laughs> All right, so like, if I'm a disciple, I'm not happy about this. Like, water's pouring in. You're going down for the last time, and Jesus is like, all right, let's talk first here. Why, why, why are you afraid? Why don't you trust me? Don't you remember the Sermon on the Mount where I said, don't worry? I care about the birds. I care about the flowers. I care about you even more. Why? Your disciples are like, Jesus, spare us the lecture. This is serious. He's like, no, listen, don't be afraid. He tells them not to be afraid while the storm's still raging. Don't be afraid. Storm's still raging. You hear me? You hear me? You got this? Okay. Storm, stop. Okay. Seriously, don't be afraid. <laughs> this, is, this is the great news for me, is that when it looks like life is completely out of control, God is still very much in control. I think it's, it's great news that Jesus didn't calm the storm right away. Because... It appeared in that moment as if everything was out of control. And Jesus is like, I'm going to get to that in a minute. I'm, I'm going to get to the storm. I'm going to get there. Why are you afraid? Let's talk about that for a minute. When your life looks most out of control, God remains in control. The storm may still be raging. Still may feel like you're going down for the last time. God is still in control. Some of you can testify to this, am I right? Some of you have had this experience in your life when it feels like everything is out of control. God shows up. I'm still in control. I'm still present. I'm still, I'm still accomplishing my mission in this world. The bank forecloses on the home. God's still in control. 
Your parents split. God is still in control. Didn't get into the college that you wanted to get into. God is still in control. The student who you were pouring your life into, mentoring, praying, disappears. God is still in control. The diagnosis was the thing that you feared the most. God is still in control. Amen. This is, this is what's happening on the boat. It seems like they're going to go down for the last time Jesus says, stop it. With one word, the demons are cast out. Jesus rebukes the wind, the waves, everything's calm again. And verse 27 tells us that the men were amazed and they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This strikes me a little bit odd at first. They had seen Jesus do miracles already, right? People had been healed. Jesus had been teaching with authority. Why are they so amazed at this? This is the first time that Jesus has demonstrated his power, his authority over the creation. That's going to happen again. But this is the first time that it's happened. Well, his authority covers that too? His power expands over that too? Who is this? I tell you, this is a different kind of fear. This is a different kind of fear that the disciples are experiencing now. They've confronted fearful situations, fearful of of prejudices, biases. They're going to experience a fear when confronting evil. But in this moment, In this moment, when everything goes calm, there's a different kind of fear. I'll call it a holy fear. Wait, who is this? Whose presence are we in? Have you had that experience? Have you had that experience where you become aware of whose presence you are in. When you're praying, when you're in worship, when you're in conversation with somebody, have you had that moment, I'm in the presence of Almighty God. Who is this? Who has the power to calm the seas with a word? Who is this? Whose authority expands over the entire creation, the entire universe? Have you had that moment of holy fear This is why I think when Peter first preaches after Jesus has ascended, this is in the, in the second chapter of Acts, um, Jesus is explaining about Jesus, about his death and his resurrection. And this is what he says. He says, but God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Now listen to how he puts this part. Listen to how he puts this part. Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You see how he put that? He didn't say, ooh, it was this miracle, it was this magic trick. He just, poop came back to life. No, no, no. You see how he puts it? It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, if people have been paying attention, they go, of course. Of course it was. This is the same Jesus who has authority over the wind and the waves. Of course he has authority over the grave. Of course it was impossible for the grave to hold the one whose authority expands over all of creation. It wasn't a little magic trick that Jesus came back to life. No, this was, this is, the grave could not hold him. 
The language here in Acts is that it would be like a pregnant woman ready to give birth, trying to hold that baby back. Impossible. Can't be done. The grave couldn't hold Jesus. This is the one with the power over the storm, over the sea, over the entire creation. Satan thought he'd found a way to defeat Jesus on the cross. But he must have forgotten that Jesus has authority over all of creation, including the grave. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe the evil one just kind of got distracted for a little bit. Oh, the grave will keep him. You been paying attention? He has authority over everything. Over everything. So of course the grave couldn't hold the one with the power over all of the earth. Of course the cross couldn't hold the one who calls all living things into being. Of course, evil men couldn't stop the one who first breathed life into humanity. Right? Of course, Satan could not defeat the one who calmed the wind and the waves, who with one word drove out demons, and who through his suffering and death defeated evil for all time. Of course. Of course. Gospel. The gospel is that God did what God was going to do. Jesus taking on to himself all of our rebellion, all of our sin, all of our wickedness, and putting it to death on the cross. And then, of course, of course, of course, defeating death. Of course. And so it's as the disciples begin to understand just who it is that they are following, that they experience this, this deep, and I would say holy fear, Discipleship to Jesus means that we, conf- we, we will confront fearful situations. Uh, discipleship to Jesus means that we're going to have to confront our own biases, prejudices, bigotry. Discipleship to Jesus means that we are going to confront evil as we pursue Jesus. Here's what covers all of that. Here's what allows us to pursue Jesus in spite of all of that. Discipleship to Jesus means that we are confronted with the holy fear of the living God. Church, have you encountered him in this way? Do you know Jesus in this way? Is your God safe and contained? That's going to be a problem. Or do you fall on your knees in awe? Who, who is this? Who is this? I thought I knew him. I thought I understood him. Who is this? Because of all of these fears that we're going to be forced to confront as we pursue Jesus, the only thing that will keep us pushing forward is a, is a deep gut level understanding that the only thing I have to fear It's the God who loves me and gave everything for me. The only thing that I have to fear is the God, the all-powerful, the almighty, the holy God who gave everything for me. That's all I have to fear. So I will fall on my face and worship this God knowing that because of him, I have nothing else to fear. You hear me? I think our church is is entering kind of a a new season. We're we're just a few months old. 
just a few months old. Um, and, and, and I think that, that as we enter this new season, as we continue to invite people, as we continue to pursue ministry opportunities, it's going to be incredibly important that we're aware of the kinds of fear that we will be confronting. Because can I tell you, church isn't just about coming and hanging out together. This is what we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks. When we pursue God, we pursue the mission of God. So there's movement, there's activity. Because God's going somewhere. God's taking the world somewhere. He's invited us to participate with him. So as we do that as a church, we will confront these kinds of fears. It's just going to happen. I want to invite you, I want to invite you to experience these fears together. Okay? To do this together and be reminding one another that at the end of the day, the only thing that we have to fear is that God loves us. We are going to be led into situations, church, where we experience fear. It's just going to happen. We are going to experience the fear that comes from crossing dividing lines of hostility. It's going to happen. We're certainly going to know moments of fear as we follow Jesus as he confronts evil. It's going to happen. And so we must first know the fear of following the all-powerful God of the universe. Do you know him? Let's pray. Let's pray. Let me pray for you, church. Well, we come to you as people who maybe can recall a moment in the past where we we fell on our knees in utter worship and abandonment to the God of the universe. But the reality is, is that most of us day to day, we don't carry that with us. Most of us over time, we become religious experts. We think we know what you're up to. We think we can contain you. We think that we might even have something to add. We think that maybe you somehow need our expertise. So Holy Spirit, I pray, and I pray you do this gently to us, but I pray for it. Humble us. I pray that you do it gently, Lord, but would you humble us to the point where we are deeply aware of how much we need you. That we're deeply aware that you are Lord. That you are God that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are just. That there is no way to stand in your presence outside of your invitation to us through your Son. So humble us, Lord Jesus, as we enter a new season of ministry as a church, as we pursue the mission and the vision that you've given us, God, we will confront fear. Please, 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 Lord, replace those fears with a deep and abiding fear of a holy God who loves us, has always loved us, has always pursued us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to your feet and worship with us. Jesus, we ask that you would give us the strength, give us the courage to give ourselves away this week. God, that there would be nothing that we would say no to you in. 
no matter what fear we may experience, God, would our answer to you this week be yes. 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 And Lord, would we find, would we find, as we say yes to you, that because we serve the God who has conquered sin, death, and evil, that there is nothing to fear but a holy God who loves us. Holy Spirit of God, give us insight this week to where we need to say yes to you. Don't let this be a a message. Don't let this be an encounter with Scripture that goes in one ear and out the other. Would you be willing, church, to ask this week, specifically, Lord, where can I say yes to you? Where can I say yes to you? So we give ourselves to you, Jesus. We give ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. We give ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, so that you can use us to participate in your mission to redeem, restore, and reclaim your world. So you can use us. Give ourselves away. Pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. As the worship team sings us out, church, now go in the grace and the mercy of a God who has called us to mission. See you next week. Give myself away. Oh, I give myself.